Hello and welcome to Monocle on Culture with me, Robert Bound. This week, we've got a bit of a cultural roundup ahead as we're hopping around art galleries, film festivals and having a picturesque history lesson. We'll be heading to a new Helen Frankenthaler exhibition here in London to discover her groundbreaking work in printmaking. Over in Switzerland, we'll get the lowdown on this year's Zurich Film Festival and we'll learn about a new documentary about the magazine Picture Post that depicted Britain in a brand new light and broke the mould for photojournalism in the mid-20th century. That is all coming up on Monocle on Culture. Do stay tuned. We're kicking things off in southeast London at the Dulwich Picture Gallery, where a new exhibition of the American artist Helen Frankenthaler has just been unveiled. Frankenthaler is known for being one of the most important abstract artists of the 20th century. She constantly challenged herself and experimented with colour, material and process. She was pivotal in the shift from abstract expressionism into colour field and pushed the boundaries of her art through her six-decade-long career up until her death in 2011. At the Dulwich Picture Gallery are a series of her woodcuts, spanning a 36-year period from the 1970s when she became a pioneer in printmaking and finding ways to manipulate colours and give new dimension to her work. The exhibition, called Radical Beauty, shows her painstaking process. There are proofs and drafts with notes in the margins by Frankenthaler, such as... This does not bother me. And... No schmaltz, please. Also, like woodmarks, thanks. It also reveals her move into collaboration and it culminates with perhaps her most famous woodcut called Madame Butterfly. Monocle on Culture producer Holly Fisher heads to the gallery to meet the curator Jane Findlay. Helen Frankenthaler Radical Beauty is the first UK retrospective of Helen Frankenthaler's woodcut prints. We have 36 prints here all from New York from the Helen Frankenthaler Foundation and it really offers a, an insight into a lesser known part of her career um, where she really transformed the medium of printmaking um, turning it on his head uh, in her hands woodcut prints become painterly spontaneous fluid um, works of radical beauty And when you pitched the idea of doing this exhibition here did you know that you always wanted to make it about the process of how she made these because that's a lot to do with what what we see on the walls here you know we've got all the different proofs and you know these amazing ones that have got notes written by her to her staff is that the angle that you always wanted to take um I think it's actually something I just um I said like, the more and more I read into her her work and the more the research I was doing actually it became this really fascinating story for me I wanted to kind of strike the balance between being able to understand the process behind her work but also not to take away the magic of the, of the prints themselves but I think it's important because as an artist she's very process driven and you see that in her painting I think it really plays out nicely in her in her printmaking and I really wanted to to be able to tell that part of her story and to help people understand her more broadly as an artist through her prints and I think we see a lot of that the way she asks questions the way that she challenges her the way she takes risks all those things that, that are really in, integral to her her process as an artist and that she's doing intuitively when she's making a painting you can see that 
much more in, in the in through the story of the proofs and the print. So I felt it was important to to tell that tell that story. And maybe you could explain a bit about her techniques. She has this thing that she calls guzzying. Can you tell us what that is? Sure. Yeah. So guzzying is a is a, a term she coined. She has a wonderful way with words. Um, um, yes. Yeah, so to guzzy meant to sort of distress the wood um, before printing, and she used all sorts of different tools: cheese graters, sandpaper, saws, chisels, drills, anything she could get her hands on, really. And each workshop had its own different type of type of tools that she was got limits that she was kind of working with. Um, and the, by distressing the wood, when you when you printed on it, it gave this really soft impression, that really beautiful kind of organic kind of warmth to to, to um, the kind of final final prints. Um, so it kind of belies again the <laughs> what's going on un- underneath, but gives this wonderful impression. And I mean, these are such wonderful studies of color as well. And I wonder how working with this new medium affected her relationship with color because she using these different effects like guzzying found new ways to manipulate colour, which gives them so much more depth. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, she's, she works expansively in colour, and I think printmaker just broadened that even more. I think she was trying to create space without line and using in new ways with her prints. And, yeah, so I think and obviously that just kind of multiplied what she could do with, with colour. Um, she was also very much involved in that process. She wanted to mix her own colours, and so she was discovering new colours as she went through this printmaking process as well. And she really loved to kind of push at the full range of colour, and I think prints allowed her to do that. You know, you've got 102 colours in Madame Butterfly. This is maybe a, a difficult question for you to answer because you're not Helen Frankenthaler. <laughs> <laughs> But just from having studied these works um, so deeply for this exhibition, it's amazing how much time she spent on each one and a lot of these were over a year in the making. But how do you think she managed to get to the point where she'd finished a piece of work? I think it's just she had a sense. She, like, the same was when she was making a, a, a painting. She, she said she knew when it worked and she knew if she'd overcooked it her words (laughs) she just knew when she'd reached the right thing and so I think it was just that belief that she was going to find that point and that as she did with her painting same with Prince it would hit her at some point that she had reached that kind of you know that creative outcome that she was looking for and she's obviously she's often searching for beauty which I think is a really interesting term to be to be looking for something that worked and then yeah as I said one of the for her like a great picture was something that was something that happened at once it was an immediate image and again she was looking for that kind of spontaneity with a print and she would know when she found it and beauty is an interesting thing to talk about I mean it's something that people in the art world come back to all the time and this is obviously called radical beauty what do you think beauty meant to her I think she saw beauty as something really like expansive and, and broad it wasn't like a, I think sometimes we get like this narrow definition of it being kind of something which is feminine or you know, um, sometimes that we undervalue in the art in the art world or trivial um, but for her it was like it's really empowering um, and it's it's something that works it's something that's great it's just that it doesn't have those same connotations and yeah so I think for her it was just something that the point where she reached <laughs> or, uh, was, was, was beauty to her. And she had a few collaborators who she worked with a lot on these pieces. I wonder if you could tell us a bit about who they were and what they did in the process. In particular, she worked a lot with a master printmaker called Kenneth Tyler, who's an incredible printmaker. I worked with loads of different kind of post-war artists and also a, a Japanese woodcarver and artist called Yasuki Shibata. And they were an incredible creative team. They had good 
creative synergy together. They they worked a lot in Tyler's studio um, on works such as Tales of Genji, Madam Butterfly. But then when Tyler closed his studio as well, she, um, she also worked separately with uh, Shibata at Pace Editions in New York as well, so that she kind of kept those kind of collaborative things going. So yeah, you she had to really find a new way to work because it's such a different such a contrast from working very privately in your painting studio and she's very intuitive and she'd be in the canvas doing her, her thing but then to be able to have to like orchestrate that almost and kind of help take that studio with her to find this kind of what she was trying to achieve artistically yeah it required a real different kind of a new balance where she was able to be in control and she you know she really felt that an artist's hand needs to be in the printing to feel like them and so she had to maintain that and it had to feel like hers but at the same time she had to you know enable that studio to bring their technique their skills their expertise um, their experts in what they're doing as well and to find that kind of shared ethos together to sort of yeah journey into this kind of unknown <laughs> with her and, and and to believe in 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 this and they, they worked without a roadmap and a lot of time they said they didn't know what they were doing which um, they were just trying things out t- together so I think you really have to trust each other to be able to, to do that but I think actually collaboration was really affirming for her as an individual she had to know what she wanted she had to be able to say what she wanted she don't have to do it internally and when you're on your own and so I think for her that was another reason why she you know kept returning to print making throughout her career and why it kind of is in this kind of dialogue with her painting and for you as the curator of this exhibition I mean obviously you you knew about these works before you put the exhibition on but seeing them all up close and studying them all and seeing I mean there's just so much texture to all of them and as we talked about like the Gaussian techniques and seeing all those up close and the really intricate layers what did you discover about these pieces of work that you didn't really know about before during this process well I had a quite interesting experience because of the whole pandemic and not being able to actually go to New York and see these pieces so I was working a lot on digital images so to actually see the real things in real life when I finally got to (laughs) was really incredible and I think you can see just the depth of color but also just her attention to detail there's often you get just a little fleck of color and it you think that's not going to make a mission, when you start taking it away, it really transforms the work. So I learned a lot about that and also a lot about um, her use of edges. Often you find just a tiny little bit of colour down one edge, but it really transforms the work. So actually being up close with them and spending time with them, the more you look at them, the more you get from them. They're works that kind of, they reward that kind of attention. And so, yeah, absolutely, you have to come and see them in person to really kind of get them. I mean, some of them are physically 3d they've got layers but they the longer you spend with them the, the more they kind of jump out it's kind of like putting a pair of 3d glasses on <laughs> yeah, Frankenthal has this incredible way of making things feel really flat but also really spacey and spacious and I think I love that speciality in her work and you get that in her in her painting but she manages to do that in print as well which is phenomenal really and yeah so to be able to see them in person you can kind of get that that sense with them and they they really are captivating you kind of sometimes feel like you're falling into some of them because of the depth of that color You've got a bonus room on this exhibition. Um, perhaps you could tell us uh, what, what we can find in there. Sure. So, yes, we have a little coda to our exhibition. Um, we've got a special display. Um, where we have a Monet water lily in conversation with one of 
Helen Frankenthaler's painting's feather. Uh, and it's an amazing conversation between two artists who both were masters of using colour, uh, who found inspiration in nature. And it's really interesting to see how, you know, something like abstract expressionism feels really like an iconic American art form. But actually, uh, there's European roots to that too. And to put the two in get together, you can kind of see, see that really nicely for the first time. That was Jane Findlay, curator of Helen Frankenthaler, Radical Beauty at the Dulwich Picture Gallery, and that is on until April next year. Next up, we're dialing up Switzerland, where the Zurich Film Festival is just about to take place. It's a big season for Hollywood films with the latest James Bond about to come out, as well as new ones by Wes Anderson, Jane Campion and Ridley Scott. All of these are on the list at this year's festival, alongside plenty of Swiss talent and a partnership with Tunisia to show off some of their filmmakers too. Fernando Augusto Pacheco catches up with Zurich Film Festival's director, Christian Jungen, to find out more. We are the second biggest festival in the German language realm after the Berlinale and certainly the most important in autumn. And Zurich Film Festival has revealed itself to be a springboard to the Oscars. So from the 10 uh, best picture winners of the last 10 years, six um, premiered at Zurich or were in our program. Green Book, for example, which opened the festival three years ago. And that's the reason why many uh, studios and American companies such as Netflix use Zurich to um, highlight their films uh, in order to make them more prestigious. And we are very happy uh, about this situation and are also doing the most to get as many Academy members from the Oscar Academy to Zurich as possible. It's funny you mentioned the Oscars because, you know, I was looking at the lineup of the festival this year. It very much feels that Hollywood is back. I mean, you know, the big studios, which is, I think is quite exciting. I'm sure we're going to talk a little bit about the smaller films as well. But tell us about this kind of resurgence of Hollywood after a very difficult year. Well, the Zurich Film Festival always loved American cinema, uh, the best films Hollywood produced. Then last year, when I took over and I'm a big um, friend of Hollywood... There wasn't much possible because the studios withheld most of their prestigious titles. But this year we managed to get quite a lot of them, among which No Time to Die, the latest James Bond installment, the last film starring Daniel Craig. And we can actually screen this film just 15 minutes after the beginning of the world premiere in London. So this is basically the second screening in the world. So this is one of the prestigious titles we managed to get. And the other one, and I will never forget this title in my life, is The Last Duel by Ridley Scott, because um, the day our program should have gone to print, um, they wanted to uh, cancel the premiere and it took me hours to convince Disney to leave it in the program. It's a great film. It takes place in medieval France. It's about uh, rape. And the story is told from every person in Walt's perspective. It's kind of a modern Rashomon. And although it takes place in the uh, 15th century, it obviously talks about today's world after Me Too. That's fantastic. I mean, and, and Ridley Scott, I mean, he's a fantastic director. He's still so prolific. Talking about the lineup, what about Swiss cinema? I mean, we, we spoke about how COVID affected Hollywood. Uh, in terms of the lineup, are, are you, are, you, I know you're an optimist, uh, but tell us, I mean, what's the latest with Swiss cinema and will you be showing a couple of them at the festival? Well, we have um, 24 Swiss films we, we're going to show. 
And you have to know that two thirds of the film industry in Switzerland are based in Zurich. So this is the film industry's capital. And I see it as our uh, duty to, to highlight what they produce. Our opening night film is called uh, And Tomorrow You Will Be Dead by uh, local auteur Michael Steiner. He's very popular in Switzerland with his films. And it's a hostage um, thriller about two Swiss who were taken hostage by the Taliban 10 years ago. And when we selected this film, we didn't know about what was going on in Afghanistan. Um, and we announced it as our opening night film. And obviously, many people asked us, um, should you really show a Taliban movie now that the political situation there is heating up? I think we should, because cinema is about our times. Uh, cinema has to be controversial, has to bring up questions. And this thriller certainly brings up a lot of questions, for example, on the Swiss media who didn't report correctly on the whole hostage drama. So it's a risky choice, but I'm looking forward to presenting this film. And I'm also looking forward to see how the discussions will be about the film. Well, that's why I like a festival like yours, uh, Christian, because, you know, I didn't know about this film and it sounds super interesting and very much of its time. Another interesting thing I was looking at the lineup, I, I think you have a guest country for every edition of the show. This time it's Tunisia. Quite an interesting choice. Tell us a bit more and, and what does it mean? Every year we select a country where there is something going on, where there is a new generation doing um, cutting edge films. And Tunisia, this is our first guest country from Africa. And I think it's about time that we Europeans start to look towards Africa. You have to know that in 1950, their population was a fifth of Europe. In 2000, it will be 10 times more than Europe. And a lot of these younger folks want to come to Europe. So we need to look towards them and to understand how they live. In Tunisia, they are 10 years after the Arab Spring. They have a very young population who want certain liberties and the cinema is showing these liberties and is helping to establish them. And it's also the year where a film like The Man Who Sold His Skin by Kautur Ben Hania was the first ever film from Tunisia to be nominated for an Oscar. It's about a refugee who has a tattoo on his back which gets a which becomes a sensation in the art world and this refugee suddenly is an artwork and as an artwork he can travel but not as a refugee and starting from this situation it's a satirical comedy uh, with political subtones and it's a very accessible cinema it's it's in french language most of the films are co-produced by france and it's about time that uh, local audiences get to know these very exciting tunisian films Christian, another very exciting guest for this year's uh, festival is that Sharon Stone will be receiving the Golden Icon Award. What an amazing choice, because I think sometimes she can be a bit overlooked. Uh, but I'm so glad that you're doing a celebration of Sharon Stone. That's, that's very exciting. And she always brings a little glamour to the event as well. Absolutely. You're so right. She's overlooked because for most people, she's the femme fatale from Basic Instinct. And she is really an icon. Uh, this role made her an icon. But she can be also, you know, a caring mother of a child who has cancer. She has such a broad range and we want to highlight um, what she did. 
And we want to also have a conversation with her because she not only made tremble the man on screen, but also in Hollywood, because she fought for equal pay uh, of women in the industry. And also she spoke out against sexism. So she was a role model for many younger actresses in the film business. And she's certainly someone who doesn't uh, leave cold anyone. And we are very much looking forward to welcoming her here in Zurich. Thanks to Christian Jungen and Fernando Augusto Prosecco. And the Zurich Film Festival takes place from the 23rd of September until the 3rd of October. Finally, we're going to end with a brand new documentary about the highly influential magazine Picture Post. It was started in Britain in 1938 by a Hungarian immigrant called Stefan Laurent and became known for its progressive documentation of Britain throughout the war and beyond. Using some of Europe's best photographers and writers, the magazine didn't just give us an honest depiction of British society, but it questioned how it would emerge from the war and societal changes that needed to be made. It was groundbreaking for all sorts of reasons, a new approach to photojournalism and magazine layouts, and for an open-minded approach to telling stories that were often glossed over in the media about the working class, immigrants and minority groups. It was effective. By the second month of publishing Picture Post, they were already selling two million copies a week, and they're widely credited as being key to the election of a Labour government post-war. To bring Picture Post to a new audience, director Rob West has made a documentary called Picture Stories, and here he tells us more about it. I've been aware of Picture Post for a long, long time, and in a way I've been sort of conscious of it as being an iconic British publication. But I was reading around some stuff about photography, about British photography and so on, and someone lamenting the fact that that whole generation of photography um, and the whole contribution of picture post photographers had, had somehow been lost in memory. So I was kind of interested in the idea of looking back at picture post, but through explicitly through modern eyes to approach current British photographers, leading photographers in their field, and particularly today's documentary photographers and street photographers, and asking them to talk about what Picture Post means to them and to look at the picture stories of Picture Post through their eyes. The street photographers, we, we owe a great deal to that Picture Post heritage. The photo story is an incredibly powerful medium. I think Picture Post had a considerable impact in a number of ways. I mean, first of all, it was the creation really of European refugees from fascism. Primarily, of course, it's founder editor Stefan Laurent, who was born in Hungary, who then moved to Germany, became a very successful picture editor, uh, editor of, of picture magazines in, in, in Germany, in Berlin and in Munich, and then also back in Hungary and then fled to this, this country, having been imprisoned by Hitler for a few months. And clearly what he brought with him was a considerable amount of knowledge about new techniques of photography, new ideas around how to create a picture magazine and lay photographs out to create compelling picture stories. And he also brought with him a, a whole load of contacts with other photographers, other refugees from photography and so on. And so they brought with them a huge amount of knowledge that was not existing in this country at that time about the possibilities of photography, about the possibilities of the picture magazine and about the idea of laying out photography to create stories. So I think that in itself 
was hugely innovative. And then he had very strong ideas about making a magazine which was accessible to the widest possible audience. At its height, it's reckoned they had, it had something like five million readers, which in terms of the British population is really a huge circulation and certainly compared with today's magazines and newspapers is, is, is massive. Very deliberately, Fixture White Post went out to parts of the UK that were socially deprived, that were perhaps neglected, that people were perhaps unaware of in, their, in the comfort of their living rooms, and went out and, 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 and sought to, if you like, represent Britain back to, to the British in a very socially-minded way. So it then, of course, uh, in different ways, had a considerable political impact in terms of the way it argued for a, a national health service, an expanded welfare state, uh, and some of the reforms that then came um, later on with the election of Labour, Labour government. During the war, everywhere you went in the Middle East and places, you would see copies of picture posts floating about, chucked on the ground in cafes. Uh, and I looked at these, really looked at them for the first time. And that's what, what attracted me. I thought these dramatic pictures, that was some sort of photography that immediately appealed to me. I didn't want to do gracious portraits or anything like that. I wanted uh, movement and drama and storytelling. What is interesting really with Picture Post is it kind of brings together two separate strands. There is that kind of European refugee perspective, but there is then also with that, a very British perspective from, from British photographers such as Humphrey Spender and Bert Hardy, who, who came along and, and, and brought other traditions, other understandings of British society, an intimacy, I suppose, with parts of British society. Um, so it's kind of almost that, that kind of mixture of cultures that I think made it so interesting, so powerful that you were getting both the insider perspective, but you were also getting the outsider perspective, the more detached perspective. And, and somehow in that mix, you got a very unusual take on what British society was about. Now, I've always been fascinated by that, the fact that, you know, when you cross uh, the threshold of your front door, you're stepping from a private place into a public place. You know, it's always appealed to me that, you know, what happens in a public place is a matter of public record. And as photographers, we can take advantage of all of that. You know, we can, I can go out and without, without permission, I can just photograph uh, life as it happens. You know, it's a slightly subversive act in a way. It was groundbreaking in its use of women journalists and photographers in, in a significant way and giving them quite a degree of prominence in terms of the, the ability to put together and publish picture stories. It was also, I think, groundbreaking in some of its discussions about society and its advocacy of reform in society. It was groundbreaking clearly, as we discussed, in its use of photography and its use of picture layouts. And I think it was groundbreaking latterly in its discussion of immigration, of the multicultural society, of its willingness to, to shine a light on, on corners of society that, on the whole, tended to be neglected and ten, tended to be talked about in, in, in rather limited terms. The editor, particularly the, the second editor, Tom Hopkinson, I think really had a, a, a strong moral sense of the need to, to challenge authority 
not in a in a subversive sense, but in in, in a patriotic sense, and, and even right the way through the war, to, to question and to challenge and to to debate what was going to happen after the war in society at large. That was the director Rob West, and his film Picture Stories is out on September the 24th. And that brings us to the end of today's episode. Monocle on Culture was, of course, produced by Holly Fisher, and we'll be back at the same time next week. But until then, from me, Robert Bound, thank you very much for tuning in. <laughs>